been a busy weekend. Sometimes you need prayer, but sometimes you just need the Muller's pot roast. I mean, so good. Like, so good. My kids, um, they're not picky eaters or anything, but they, like, loved your food. So thank you very much for having us. It was amazing. I feel, feel rejuvenated. It's great. Uh, really thankful to bring an encouragement from God's Word to you again today. Uh, it's a, an exciting story we're going to talk about. How many of you guys like surprises? Just like surprises. I love surprises. Are there, in, in missions, we have been surprised more times than we could count, but some that I think about are when we moved there, we had the expectation that we might not see a convert for years, and within a few months, God saved somebody, and we got to disciple her has become a dear sister in Christ. He's just surprised us with what he's able to do. And then as I left for our, our first furlough three years ago, uh, you know, kind of leaving with the expectation that we're going to tell churches, you know, we still don't expect there to be a church in Cat Lake for some time. And when we're gone on furlough, God saves a man who starts a church in Cat Lake. And it's just that church is, is now the, the Cat Lake church. And he just surprised me again. And one thing about this story is it's, it's got a big surprise in it. It's, it's this story that if we come to understand and trust, it'll help us be more ready for surprises God has for us in our lives. It'll help us through times of uncertainty and faithlessness. Uh, it'll just show that God loves to surprise his people with what we deem is impossible, but is far from impossible for him. So I want to read Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read this whole story, so if you have a Bible, I'll be reading that, uh, ESV. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of four soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When, he had pa when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own, of its own accord, and they went out, and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the, that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many, many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl came, named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Father, this story is amazing. It's true. Even though this happened almost 2,000 years ago, we know that this happened, and we could just be amazed by it, first of all, and also know that it has something to say to us today. Your spirit is alive in this text. It's alive in this story. And I know that you have something for each and every one of us. So help us to see clearly what you've laid out in this text, to enjoy the story, and to know that we're part of that story still. In Christ's name, amen. It's an amazing story, right? I mean, it's, it's exciting. There's some surprises in there, but it's also quite a tragic story. I mean, there's lots of death in this story, including the beloved apostle James. And this story, at first glimpse, it's about faith in God, but the more you look at it, it's about kind of apparent faith in God that just turned out to be doubt and fear covered with this religious action. And this is really a story about grace in the face of total uncertainty, that if we come to understand and believe, it will allow us to act in faith in times of just complete uncertainty, like what was happening to Peter and the church in this story that we'll be able to see that God knows exactly what he's doing, even when we don't. You see, before the Spirit came at Pentecost, there was a major lack of understanding of the lostness of man and the greatness of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' own disciples were clueless most of the time. So the Spirit coming gave men, women, and children the ability to finally understand the implications of the gospel and how to live by faith. However, the scriptures still often highlight that sometimes Spirit-filled people could be completely lacking faith and trusting that God can and will do astonishing things. Spirit-filled people. And this includes us. We have to admit that we're one of those people, that even though we have the Spirit, we sometimes lack the faith to know that God could do astonishing things. And this story in Acts is a good reminder that God is committed to his mission despite the lack of faith in his own children. And this story reminds us that as gospel-believing, Spirit-filled people, the early disciples were not prepared to be astonished by the same type of miracle that happened at the cross. They had just seen Jesus rise from the dead, but they still struggled to believe that power was still at work. So let's take a brief look at this story together and see how God wants to speak to us today. This is one of the last stories in Acts before the Gospels is about to explode through the Gentiles. While the believers are in the middle of this relief mission to help those in Judea prepare for famine, that's how the story starts here. They're preparing for this relief mission to Judea. Herod makes this bold move to kill James and attack these other believers. It's sad. He kills James 
And it pleased the Jews, so they take Peter and they put him in prison, intending to kill him too after Passover. This is a major threat. This story starts as a major threat to the mission that needed to be accomplished. Not just the mission to bring relief to Judea, but the gospel had not yet gone to the ends of the earth. And churches had not been established. And you're talking one apostle's already dead, and now you have Peter in prison. So we're going to see here what God does to change that. And he's going to do two main things. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to free his worker. And the second thing he's going to do is take out the persecutor. And two things, these two things are quite honestly things that the, the disciples had the inability to do and quite frankly believe was possible. To free Peter and then take out this persecutor, this man of great power. So like I said, similar to when Jesus was killed, James's death, it pleased the Jews. They were happy. So Herod was on this persecuting high, right? Peter's arrested and he's going to be brought out to be condemned to death by those same Jews that were happy about James's death. So what we have to realize as we're starting this story is that this is certain death for Peter. This is certain death. This is painting a grim picture for Peter here. Back in Acts 5, when a similar story happens, an angel had freed some of the apostles from prison. We saw this happen. But at the beginning of this chapter, we don't see the same tone. No angel yet. James is dead. He was killed. Gone. Now he's with his Savior, that's happy for James, but that's a grim situation for the church. They loved James. They needed James. So we're left, and they're left asking, what, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen to Peter now? Is this the end? Look at the way Luke explains Peter's situation in verses 4 and 6 specifically. It says, delivering him over to four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Will Peter's situation end the same as James? Luke wants us to see that there's nothing could be, that could be done for Peter besides a miracle. He's giving us this, these numbers about four soldiers, four squads, two chains, right? He's just showing, like, he's in there. <laughs> he's not leaving. That's what Luke wants us to see. So what will we see as the response of the church sandwiched right between the grim explanation of Peter's horrible position? Because right between 4 and 6, we see verse 5. What are they doing? They're praying. The church is praying for Peter. And what kind of prayer is it? It's earnest prayer. They were praying really hard and hoping against hope that God could do something amazing. That sounds really good, right? Wow. We might just stop there and start talking about how the church should be making earnest prayer for miraculous things to happen. But we can't come to conclusions too soon about their faith in this earnest prayer. And we'll come back to that. So what happens next? Look at what happens next, verses 7 through 10. It says that, let me find it here. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done was by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out along one street and immediately the angel left him. 
Peter? I mean, this is a huge surprise here. We read this, we don't think much of it. It's like, oh yeah, now Peter's freed. Guys, Peter's freed. He was just between four centuries, four soldiers, four squads, whatever it is, two chains. He's in there, and then all of a sudden we read this part, just like, he's free, and we're not like excited, right? This is a big deal in the story. He's miraculously brought out of the prison by this angel. But what I want us to notice about this, though the whole part of the, the story is amazing, look at how Peter responds. Look at verse 11. It says that he had to come to his senses to understand what was happening. Peter, he could not believe it himself. Peter, the famous disciple, had trouble believing. Did he display faith right here? Honestly, not. He, he, he thought it was a vision, right? He was slapped by an angel, chains dropped off, gates opened by themselves, and what's he thinking? dude, this is a really nice dream. This is the best dream I've ever had. That's what it's saying here. He thought he's seeing a vision. He's not knowing that this is real. I honestly think that he did not expect to be saved from death. Remember, he just saw his friend James lose his life for Christ. And it's amazing that God, even after surprising Peter with his own resurrection and the forgiveness he received after denying Christ, did not stop surprising Peter with what's possible when you're part of a forever kingdom. This is so cool. God's not done with Peter yet. I think Peter's sitting there in the prison thinking, I'm okay to die. If this is the end, I trust. I, trust, I know my, my Savior's risen. I know I will rise again. But it's amazing that God is showing Peter here, I'm not done with you. And he takes him right out beyond his own belief. And I think Luke records Peter's reaction because he wants his audience and us to know that doubt is normal. Doubt is real. We cannot put God in a box of what he can and can't do. And I often try to do that. And in Cat Lake, he just pulls me out of that box, right? I try to fit him in my own theological boxes and I don't realize that he's going to surprise me with who he is beyond what I can imagine. And that's what he did here with Peter. And Luke records that for us to see. So when Peter finally comes to it, he finally realizes that this is real. What does he decide to do first? He said, I'm going to go tell the church. That's amazing. That's his first response. I want to tell somebody. Look at verse 12 and 13. When he finally realizes, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I think there's a theme of the whole book, right? Peter... Though he was ready, I think, to die, he was freed. So what is his first job once he's freed? I'm going to be a witness. I'm going to be a witness to how amazing God is, what he just did. I'm going to go share about his power. So he comes to the house with all the believers, and this is one of my favorite parts. God did exactly what the church was hoping and praying for. But let's look at the response of these spirit-filled people. Verses 14 through 17. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But, oh, but, sorry, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So he gets there. He gets to the house. So, such an exciting moment for him, right? Can you imagine being Peter in this moment, waiting to see their faces? He knocks at the door and what happens? 
This lady, Rhoda, hears his voice and run, without even opening it, so he doesn't even get the satisfaction of showing them his face. She runs and tells the others. And how does the majority of the church respond? They tell Rhoda, you're crazy. Rhoda, why would you interrupt our prayer for Peter to tell us that Peter's at the door? That's ridiculous. They were literally praying as this news reached their ears, but they think there's no way it could be true. So what kind of earnest prayer is this? Yeah, it's earnest prayer, but it's not faith-filled prayer, right? Because here you have Rhoda telling them, Peter's at the door. And that's an offensive thing. They say, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. It's his angel. Let's not put ourselves above them, though. How often do we earnestly pray? And I can tell you for myself, it's not as often as I'd like. But earnestly pray. Pray just like them and still don't expect God to do something astonishing. Just like me with the church starting in Cat Lake. We forget the gospel in our earnest prayer. What is the gospel? A man came out of the grave. We need to remember that as we're praying. A man came out of the grave. Anything God could do. But what happens? We forget the gospel in our prayer. But what's the good news? What's the good news in this passage? Not just leaving us saying, oh, we stink at praying. We stink at having faith. Despite terribly weak faith in prayer, God still answers prayer. Isn't that beautiful? They're praying earnestly, but lacking faith in their prayer, but God still answers their prayer. Wow. That's incredible. He wants us to be astonished by his own faithfulness, not the strength of our prayer. He wants us to see that the apostle is not the hero in the text. Who's the unlikely hero in this text? The unlikely example for us here is Rhoda. Rhoda, she believed without even seeing. She just heard his voice and knew it was him, and in her joy, she went and told others. What a great example to follow. Rhoda's the hero. And on that note, another amazing thing about this story is how much it, it reminds us of what God did back on Resurrection Sunday. What are some gospel similarities you see here between this story as Peter's brought out and when Jesus comes out of the grave? Well, first of all, they're both freed from certain death. Jesus actually died. Peter was as good as dead. They're both freed. Who are they both revealed to first? A woman. By the majority, they're not believed until they're seen. You know, they thought Jesus was a ghost when they saw him. They thought it was Peter's angel, right? There's absolute astonishment. And then there's this telling to report the things that happened to the other brothers. Do you see these similarities between this and when Jesus resurrected? We have to ask the question, why does God do this? Why does he give us this post-shadowing? You've heard of foreshadowing of the cross. Why is this post-shadowing here now? It's another opportunity for the believers to grow in their understanding of their own lack of faith and remember that the same power that brought Jesus out of the dead is still demonstrated as the gospel explodes to all nations. Jesus is not done doing what he does best. The impossible. It's a power that cannot be bound by human rulers. And that's something that's so relevant today. We get so caught up in what's happening in our own nation, in our own little kingdoms, that we forget that Jesus is still on a mission and that no one, no matter how much you don't like them or how powerful they may seem, can stop his plan. Jesus freed Peter because he wasn't done with him. He freed Peter to show these proud leaders that they have no real power over his church. And he did it to amaze the men, women, and children that would hear this story 
and need the encouragement to press on in the midst of all the persecution that was coming. Because hard times are coming for the church. But that story spread. He freed Peter, brought him out. That's what they needed to hear. But let's not forget that the same Jesus who freed Peter also allowed the sword to fall on James. He allowed the sword to fall on James just as intentionally as he opened Peter's prison door. So the death of James is just as crucial for us to remember as the rescue of Peter. You ask the question, we should ask the question, why did God let James die? And this question is relevant right now because all of us at some point will find ourselves facing death, pleading with God for deliverance for another day, another year, and not receiving what we think we're asking for. And it points to a difficult lesson that all of Jesus' disciples must learn. And that's that Jesus often has different priorities than we do. What may feel desperately urgent to us might not be desperately urgent to him, at least not in the same way. Hebrews 2.15 says that Jesus has, through his death, freed us from the slavery to the fear of death. Nobody wants to die, but through Christ we don't have to fear it. We can know that Jesus' plans are better than our own. But now let's see how God is going to turn the tables on this persecutor. Because so far he's freed the worker, but there's still a problem. There's still Herod. So let's see what God's going to do next. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had, ha- had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that he should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and, uh, and spent time there. So after Peter can't be found, these guards of the wicked Herod are executed, which I just find very interesting that it goes from Herod killing believers to killing his own men. And then the next thing God does is to take out this wicked leader himself because he's still a threat to the prospering of the church around Jerusalem and God was not going to have it. There's times that, that the persecutors got to kill a lot of people, but this one in particular, God is not going to allow it. There's still more to be done that this guy's getting in the way of. So let me read verses 20 through 23. Now Herod was with was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Right, so you have the crowd comes to Herod, they're sucking up here. They're dependent on Herod's country for food. And so they're trying to first get an audience with him. They, they talk to his chamberlain. They get an audience with Herod. And so they get there. And Herod, being the proud leader he is, he puts on his royal robes. He stands up and he gives this oration. We don't know what he said, but we know how they responded. These people, voice of a God, not of a man. What do they want? They want food, right? So they're just, gonna, they're just sucking up to him. They're just making him feel good. But Luke records this for a reason. He wants us to see something's going on here. After allowing this crowd to praise him as a god, it says that an angel of the Lord struck him, and he became infected with worms and died. Isn't it amazing that we see two men in this story that were visited by an angel? One is a humble gospel worker in prison, struck by the angel to wake up, get dressed, and leave. And then we see another 
man, an arrogant and violent man who's dressing himself in royal robes, being praised as a god, struck by the angel only to be killed, to die, and eaten by worms. And what's the direct result of this happening? Right after Herod's death, we see the most repeated phrase in the whole book of Acts. And that's verse 24 and 25. It says, but the word, well, just 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So he takes out this persecutor and then the word just flourishes and multiplied. And on top of that, we see in verse 25 that the relief mission was actually able to be accomplished. So God didn't just care about the the word of God going out, he also cared about the believer's physical needs. And that was something else that wouldn't have been able to happen without Herod being taken out. So it's cool that God wants both his word to go forth and these practical needs to be met of the church in, in Judea. So the story started with James' death and it ended with Herod's. It started with Peter, this ambassador of the word, bound in prison, and it ends with Peter unbound and the word flourishing. So this story... I know this was a very brief overview, but this story really teaches us to be careful not to be too impressed by temporary worldly triumphs over the gospel because as you could see, if you oppose Jesus, you lose. That's what he just wants us to see here. Don't be impressed with temporary worldly triumphs over the gospel because if you oppose Jesus, you lose. And I'm sure many of us are feeling that there's triumphs over the gospel in our lives. There's constant attacks on us as Christians. Constant attacks on Christ and the gospel. And we sometimes could think we're losing. You know, Jesus, what are you doing? But he's not losing. Don't be impressed by those temporary, temporary worldly triumphs because those people will lose. So be bold and courageous to spread the word and let God do the work to grow it. He's really good at it. So the worker's been freed, the persecutor's been taken out, but there's still another application here for the original audience as well as us in this passage. Did you notice the important contrast that Luke gives between Peter and Herod for the church to see here? When Peter's freed, after he comes to his senses and he goes to church, what's his attitude? What's his response? It's, it's so humble, right? He gets there and he quiets them, right? He could have exalted himself. I know I would have been tempted to. Guys, I was in prison and God freed me. I must be really important, right? Like I would want a little bit of the attention in this, but Peter's like, shh, just go tell others what God's done. But what does Herod do? He gets the praise and his response is, I want more of it, right? Those of us who have faith, even though it's very weak at times, we need to give glory to God when astonishing things happen, not ourselves. And trust me, I struggle with that because we are constantly having to report what's going on in Cat Lake, and sometimes it's excruciating because that puts me in temptation's path to take credit for anything that's happening in Cat Lake. Right? And those of us who are parents too, when thing, good things happen with our kids, we want to be proud as if it's us, but it's really God. And this is put here to show us that God's going to do surprising things, but be careful because temptation is still lurking at the door for you to be praised rather than God. So it's our job to redirect all praise to God, all glory to Him. My younger sister spent over a decade of her life walking in complete darkness. And though I prayed for her, 
and continued to point her to Jesus, I honestly did not think anything would change. Sorry. Then one day she calls me, she's in Cat Lake, and begins to explain to me how God has opened her eyes and changed her heart and that she had been born again. I just wept in amazement at what God could do at his surprising, overwhelming grace. And that's the attitude I want to have all the time. I want to have that attitude all the time. Be ready for God to do anything. I want my prayer to reflect that, that I'm ready for that prayer to be answered as it's still being prayed. So to conclude what God wants us to walk away with today from this passage, pray earnestly, pray earnestly. Expect to be astonished and give God the glory when he does astonish us. Remember not to fear the wrong things, like ungodly leaders or death, but he who has the power over our souls. And remember that every day for the ministry that God has given you, and know that the gospel will go forth despite our major lack of faith. It will go forth. God wants to use each and every one of us in his mission, so be like Rhoda. Be like Rhoda, who in her joy, without even seeing, because none of us have seen Christ face to face, so without even seeing, go and share what God has done, and it will multiply. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, you're not much more to say, God. Your, your grace is amazing. Our faith is not. The faith we have is a gift, so how could we boast? But there's so much of our flesh that we still cling to that our faith is muffled out, so we pray, Lord, that we would, like I talked about this morning, put off the old self so that the faith that you have in us, the faith that is in us can breathe and multiply, grow, so that we could be faithful, that even in times of persecution or suffering or fearing ungodly leaders, because they do have lots of power, know that you're in control, know that you do astonishing things. Without even seeing, we could believe and go share in our joy because you will multiply that work. Thanks for the church, Lord. Thanks for the body of Christ. There's no other explanation for why we would want to sit under your word and learn together than your spirit at work in us. So we're thankful for him. In your name we pray. Amen.